KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. If you've been watching for the past seven seasons, what I would call the suspense finance thriller series Billions on Showtime, we know it's winding down in its seventh season. And as we're watching the episodes, especially this last season, I find myself thinking about the first 10 minutes of the first episodes where we meet Chuck Rhodes, who's literally bound by desire. And we see Bobby Axelrod showing his support for someone. And if you remember those moments... Those moments basically inform this last season of the show, I think. It's creators Brian Koppelman and David Levine are here with me. First of all, guys, thanks so much. And I really did flash back to those moments watching this season. Thanks so much for having us, Elvis. Great to talk to you. And yeah, we we wanted to make this season one for the fans, one for the people who watch closely, and you know, one for ourselves and our and our crew, really, and our cast. Yeah, and I, I know you know this, Elvis. We've been friends for such a long time and have talked about movies and stories and for so long that, you know, when we have our sort of viewership in mind, we do think of the people who are obsessed with the show. I know you don't watch things over and over again, but your um, recall and ability to synthesize is such that you don't have to, but to get the same stuff out of it. But it is for people like you, right? For people who want to remember something and hold it from four seasons before, five seasons before to figure out how it informs, changes, hits off of what's happening. And it's so, man, it's so rewarding to the two of us to hear that somebody's watching and thinking that way. And that when Dave says we're making the show for the fans of the of, of Billions, we're talking about people who reach out and, and let us know over the years. They catch every weird reference. They notice every music drop. They seem kindred to us in a certain way. And we wanted this final season to deliver for them. For all the stuff you've given us with these guys over the years, those opening scenes really told us who and what they were. And I just wanted to go back to that because my memory is it's like a minute of Chuck tied up on the floor in his home before we hear anybody, which I thought, what's going on here? And then we see Bobby, if I'm remembering right, that first scene is him at the pizza parlor really offering, doing something altruistic. And we can see his heart and his eyes in that scene. When you are so close to something and keep trying to dive deeper into it, I think David and I feel like the form of the show really showed up for us in the fourth episode when that Andrew Bird song is playing and the guy is shooting the, the, the machine gun at the deer outside. That was the form. But when you're, you're right, that the thematics... And the central thing about these characters, that was there from the start. And one thing we've been thinking about a lot is these two characters, perhaps you were able to see their essence or the audience could see aspects of their essence. But a lot of the show, we think, was maybe them finding their way to who they really are. They didn't lie to themselves. Other characters have come throughout the show. It's an unpeeling of their own lies to then figure it out. These two people basically understood who they were over the course of the show, became more and more comfortable with that fact, back to the essence of who they were, if that tracks for you. 
at some point in every season, somebody says, as often as not, it's Chuck's now ex-wife, you don't work for the law, you work for the good of Chuck Rhodes. And we get, at some point, Bobby's, I, I hate to say this to him, but his his essential decency rising out of him. So much of the show is really, at some point, in each season of the show, we see these guys who they really are, kind of stripped naked. And and that always fascinates me about seeing that because it's happened in every season one way or another. You know, Bobby Axelrod is a very American character. And I think a billionaire who is largely unabashedly selfish, working for what he wants, but being at some point honest about it, can make you feel that he's decent. That seems to be maybe only an American attribute. And, <laughs> you know, of course, Chuck Rhodes a man sworn to uphold and prosecute the laws, but who is working for the benefit of Chuck Rhodes, that seems as American as apple pie to us as well. And even this morning, I was listening to a podcast and it was a financial podcast. And these guys were opining about how it seems like the U.S. attorneys are going after these um, crypto guys in a career building way, as if they'd just come up with this. And we felt like we'd spent you know, last 10 years thinking about how these guys build their prosecution records for the for their own benefit. You mentioned Wendy Rhodes, and I, I think that one thing that's really there in the opening of the show all those years ago, and that the whole first season was about, was Wendy, right? Wendy wins the first season. But the triangle and, of and her. And the triangle of, those, of, of her and those men, and whether she could bring them to what she thought was the better part of who they were. And I, I th- think I could make the argument that Chuck has evolved. He finally found something that he could put slightly in front of Chuck Rhodes, even if it's only because the existential threat of like nuclear winter act- would affect him <laughs> and he could see that it would. Um, but I think there might be a slight bit of growth, which is always over a, a long running series, figuring out how to allow the characters to grow without betraying who they are, meaning not just change because the creators, the actors got bored, but to grow the way a character in literature or a movie can grow is challenging, right? The best shows do that so incredibly well or make the decision to not allow the protagonist to actually grow in the way Melfi calls out Tony, that it's all outer artifact. But I, I think that that Chuck has a tiny bit of uh, some kind of evolution, which may be back toward accepting his primal needs and desires. It's the trend. We're talking about finding your essential self with the creators of Billions, Brian Koppelman and David Levine. You can also do the show at kcrw.com. We should say to the show, for those who don't know, and you should find it, is about this obsessive battle, almost Conradian, between the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York and a legendary billionaire in New York. I always find it interesting about the show, especially in talking to you guys before it went on the air, is so often in shows like this, when you have characters this big, we hear about them from other people rather than seeing them this early on. And it's like you were going, we're going to do this so we're basically raising the bar for ourselves. You know what I mean? Because so often we you would hear, well, Chuck Rhodes is, is a terror or Bobby is the biggest billionaire in the world. Those kinds of things don't happen until about four or five episodes in, where we get a chance to sort of hear other people's takes on them. And then those are jaundiced takes, by the way. We are, as you know, old-time fight fans. And we felt like these were those kind of combatants and the kind who are good on the stick also, so they could say 
who they are. They, they look, I think one one way I would talk about it is we think these characters all mythologize themselves, so they don't need someone else mythologizing them. It's part of how they've gone through the world. We've noticed it in the real billionaires that we've researched and been around. It's like one of their tools is their ability to spin a narrative where they're at the center of it. And perhaps they'll even are sophisticated enough to have themselves lose in a narrative in order to then have a bigger win. And that that kind of ability to self-mythologize feels, as David was saying, very American and very much about the, the way in which these people comport themselves. Also, I love that you mentioned Conrad. I mean, this year we make a very direct reference to him uh, yeah. and to Kurtz. And it's, of course, he would pick up on it, even though it's a very kind of offhanded direct reference. I'm glad you, you brought up Wendy, too, Brian, because I just think that she's she's the character most doomed by her self-awareness. It's not just because of, of, of what she does as, as a therapist, but because she represents... I don't want to say morality, but conscience. Even in this last season, when it's clearly, and I like that all three of these guys, between Chuck and Bobby and and and, and Prince, she seems to be the least sort of driven by impulse. Even when she's wrestling with impulse, even when she uh, when we had Frank Grillo on the show for for a season, we always saw her wrestling with that impulse. And I want to ask you about that, just because that feels like a very Conradian thing too. The idea of of understanding how you are motivated and trying to to weigh that. I mean, she is the character between those that you mentioned with the most conscience because she's so hyper aware of the, the matters of the mind that even when she's being misled by like lower impulses, she has to recognize what she's betraying. And as far as character growth, we wanted her to make some growth out of the morass at the end and see a different future for herself and see that when it's not going to work out, that she should almost sacrifice herself for the greater good. We thought that that would be the right place to end a character that started with so much like brilliant psychological promise. Yeah. I mean, in the first season, you know, we drop sly everyday people on her in that moment as a way, I think, when she's receiving that car as a gift, as a, as a way to signal that perhaps she's lost for a little bit of time in deceiving herself. And then she doesn't, you know. And and I think, you know, we're talking about these characters and it's um, it's a real testament to the work that the actors do here that we haven't even really mentioned them. We're just talking about the characters um, because they inhabit them. But, you know, we're talking about Maggie Siff and Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis, and I can name the whole cast, but if for a moment we're sticking with these three who are the core of the core of the show from the beginning. You know, we each lead each other in, in these endeavors and um, their performances, particularly when you talk about Maggie, you know, Maggie's ability to convey with a half a look so much about her interiority, so much about what's roiling beneath the surface, so much about temptation and withholding. And she's a remarkable actor. And from when all of us first saw her on one of those other, you know, shows that for us is a beacon, a North Star on Mad Men, we were completely enthralled. And her work and Giamatti's work and Damien's work, what a joy to try to give them stuff to play that can bring this stuff, you know, draw this stuff out. Yeah, the another amazing thing about it is, so 
we shot the series over eight years. We took it it's seven seasons, but we had to take a year off because of COVID. And these characters never play like a false beat on screen. Meanwhile, like a huge chunk of everybody's lives go by during the making of it, where all kinds of like difficult challenges, tragedies, once in a lifetime pandemics hit while it's all going on. And they bring this incredible concentration and manage to become these characters, you know, every day on set when they need to. It, it was amazing to look back. Yeah, the preparation, I mean, often you talk process a bit on the show, and I would just say the preparation that they did and Asia Kate Dillon and Condola and all of them, Jeff DeMunn, who's, you know, absolutely uh, to me, the, <laughs> I, I, the fact that Jeffrey DeMunn isn't sort of like a household name from what he does as Chuck Sr. I have, and, to, I have to tell you, Brian, I, every time he shows up, I laugh and the canopy yeah. that he makes this season. Yeah. I mean, it's like just you think he can't do something else. I mean, and, and part of it is just that the relish Demun takes in underplaying it. And and also in his but his character's overstatement about underplaying it. I mean, yes. those the, the contradiction. I mean, he, he's making a show of not making a show of it. Then it's so wonderful to watch that. It's an amazing thing because Jeff is a an incredibly sensitive, you know, he lives in the woods. The wrong noise, could, like, like a very sane and moral guy. Yeah, like, deeply <laughs> moral. Sane. I mean, none of the none of the actors are like yeah. their characters. But, but yeah. Jeff takes these. You know, he's a long, silent walk with a big dog and cuts down at seventy whatever his own wood for the fire. You know, deeply liberal, sweet. And you're right; he's able to project this, the amount of self confidence. A brilliant thing you just said. No one said it exactly this way. As an actor, his restraint is so manifest, but Rhodes Sr. has no restraint. And that's the line, that is the Walenda High Wire Act that Jeff DeMond is pulling off the whole time. And at times you can see deep in the relish that uh, Sr. takes, you can see the actor having a great time too. And, and for us, that's just a total joy. We will take a break. We're talking about Relish with the creators of Billions, which is on Showtime. In his last season, now it's seventh season over the last eight years, Brian Kaufman and David Levine. You can hear the show at kcow.com slash the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. It's the treatment. My guests are the creators of Billions, Brian Koppelman and David Levine. You go through the show at KCRW.com slash the treatment. Gosh, but so again, so much to talk about. You're talking about music in, in the first half, Brian. I was just thinking one of my favorite bits, something that made me laugh out loud, because so often the music does that in the show, is there's a pivot from you two to I won't want to say who it is, because it will make you laugh out loud when you hear it. But that pivot, that moment is, to me, what billions is, which is these ideas constantly sort of clashing to each other, but also spinning. So there's this sort of movement. That episode aired this weekend, so you can say what it is if you want. Well, it's you two and Slayer. I mean, I, I actually screamed with laughter because like, I just... <laughs> it was, I said, you have no idea how satisfying it is to know that that hit you that way because it was scripted. You know, like a lot of shows, a lot of people, there's no one way that's better and one way that's worse. Yeah, sometimes finding the song in the editing room versus writing it in the script right in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, we tend to most of the time write it in the script now and it works. And that thing of Slayer, because we have to pick the shirts in advance that, you know, Axe is going to wear. <laughs> yes. And so the idea that U2 is playing in this thing and, you know, supposedly for Prince and then 
we're playing Angel of Death, one of the darkest, hardest, most disturbing, questionable Fire songs. <laughs> yeah, you know, metal songs of all time. And then also, as I know you know, there's almost a quaintness to all those big four now because what seemed so shocking is merely kind of the state of play. So it all just kind of worked. Though I'll say like, you know, Metallica, Megadeth, and Slayer at their height are among the greatest heavy bands of all time. And we've used all three bands and- And several of the musicians on the show too. Yeah, we're exactly right. The Metallica, we got, you know, getting to do that was um, amazing. So glad the Slayer moment hit you like that because, you know, of those bands, Slayer is really mostly known by acolytes of Slayer. They're the one, they're huge, but only to their fans. Um, other than music freaks like us and including you in, in that. So to, to know that it, it did resonate for folks was made us very happy. And yeah, Beautiful Day into Angel of Death is not something that <laughs> even DJ Cool Herc would have probably pulled off in that park, you know? But but also I thought the fun too of just not, not getting to the lyrics, just the, the overture. And then wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing just, I'm tearing up laughing just, just talking to you about this. But here's what I want to talk to you about. Between the two of you, Brian, we should say, in addition to writing, hosts an incredibly successful and, and, and really terrific podcast called The Moment. And David has written a bunch of great novels. The Frank Beer books, especially for me, resonate in this show because what you do, Dave, and, and what you do, Brian, and the other parts of your lives, you bring to the show here, which is about these characters being judged by the way they assimilate information and how quickly they assimilate it. I mean, if you look at the opening of any of the Frank Beer books, it's about how he's going to react, how the people around him react. And, and for you, Brian, in doing the moment, it's about how are you going to respond when somebody catches you off guard with something? And so much of that that pivot is about how people can react to kind of a, a slap of information and still keep their wits about them. And that's what the show is to me. I mean, personally, I don't w walk around with an awareness of that, like the way you just put it, that it's appeared in some other work I did. I think that in this case, it's something that we recognized that was very valuable on Wall Street and in hedge funds. Like the people that are going to make it really can take in the new information, whether it's somebody they're working for, somebody who has money, a competitor, or some data out in the marketplace, and assimilate that information and use it the way they want. They're the ones that are going to profit. You know, we had somebody say to us, and we put it in the character's mouth, like, you know, some people can do the math, some people can explain it, the people that can do both become billionaires. We put that right into Bobby. A billionaire said it, yeah. said it's a billionaire named Mark Lazary said it to us. Yes, I think it was just our recognition of that. And, you know, I guess that's something we put a premium on in other walks of life because it's such a fascinating characteristic. Well, of one, a person. one thing, Dave, you and I have talked about a lot is that we wanted to try to really write about characters smarter than us. Oh, yeah. I was about to say, I can't do it in my personal life. That's why I think I'm fascinated. <laughs> well, you character. know, Elvis, the ability <laughs> to retrieve, process, synthesize information to then spit out um, a new insight, that thing that sometimes people call brilliance and sometimes genius, original thought. I think David and I are fascinated by folks who can do that. And then folks who can do that, but can't see themselves sometimes or can still get themselves in trouble despite being brilliant. 
And so being brilliant doesn't make you moral. Being brilliant doesn't make you good. Um, it doesn't make you a good um, husband or wife or partner necessarily. And so we love the idea of amazingly brilliant people getting themselves in trouble. Like I want to watch a story about H.I. McDonough, but I don't know that where the guys to write about H.I. McDonough. It's no, our goal is these characters know everything that we know, plus the Internet, basically. Yeah, plus everything. Yeah. But it's funny, as you're saying that and being so deprecating about this, it's the difference between Mike and Worm. I mean, it's this idea of being able to assimilate on, on the fly. You're talking about boxing. That's about sort of being able to keep your wits around you after you've been punched in the head. But assimilating the information, looking at your opponent's feet, looking at his trainer in the corner. I mean, all these things we're talking about is about this sort of constant assessment and, and all the information coming in and how you deal with it. And on this show especially, but it's run through a lot of your work. I think it's even part of Solitary Man, which you talked about when you guys were last here is about how characters take this information in and what it does to them. I mean, that really is sort of key to the way you guys work as dramatists. Yeah, well, I mean, that one, and Brian wrote that one, but that that was a character, Ben Kalman, who could do that to an amazing degree earlier in his life, but like that started to diminish in him, and now he had to try to reckon with it. Yeah, it's like we all, you, us, Glenn Kenny, people like we could all be at a dinner and really seem from the outside like we're these experts and have this big body of knowledge, but it's in this discrete series of areas, right? Where we all sort of have spent a lifetime becoming able to do that. But there are people that we've met who have not only like a Catholicity of interests, but are incredibly deep in all those things. And it's kind of when you meet people like that, some of whom are these titans of industry many titans of industry are not uh, let's be clear <laughs> but when you meet one who is it is kind of mind-boggling to kind of figure out how it is that they go through the world and amass not only this knowledge but then these insights it's the treatment i guess which just busted me for being a mile wide and an inch deep or brian Koppelman and david <laughs> levine they are the creators of billions on showtime you can also hear the show at kcrw dot com slash treatment if you're so inclined after having busted for being shallow. Anyway, I think what I find so interesting about this show, again, the thing we were talking about in the first half that runs through your, your work, characters are surprised. And you were talking about Chuck's evolution, Brian. These characters are surprised when they have moments of decency. We even see it in Prince, who he thinks recognizing his ambition is the same as self-knowledge. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. I mean, he thinks because he knows what he is, he's better than everybody. I mean, that's a very deep understanding. You're correct, <laughs> of course. And you just, I'm so glad you just said that because one of my favorite things that Paul does as an actor, there are a few moments over the course of the series where exactly, oh, I've never thought of it, this is that great Elvis Mitchell moment, where Chuck surprises himself by being decent and Paul gives us this little tiny moment of awareness on his face, almost like he's proud of himself. Because, you know, his dad <laughs> could never be proud of him. He just, this little <laughs> moment of being proud of himself for being okay, for not being a, a monster. And um, maybe it's in that little bit of space that he's able to find the room to evolve. Well, we're talking about so much stuff, and we get into Corey Stoll, too, who really sort of stepped up. But again, with, with, with Michael Prince, who just thinks, again, that he, he's evolved because he knows what he is. He has a moment of decency with his sort of kind of ex-wife, where he's trying to give her space. I'm trying not to give too much away of things that are in, in motion. Even somebody like him, 
who calls himself out or likes to sort of say he's calling himself out, but he really isn't, when he has that moment, it's revelatory. And, and it's like you're saying, it really gives the actors something to play too, doesn't it? We sort of recognized before we started the show and it inspired us to create acts that there was like this little cadre of billionaires who were like 40 years old. They'd made tons of money in the hedge fund world. They didn't have to put on the trappings of wealth, like suits and ties. They could dress however they wanted because everybody knew that they had all this money. And there was like this frankness about the fact that they weren't doing anything particularly for the world by their efforts in the office. They were literally just extracting the money from the markets. But over the first couple of years of making the show, we became aware of like this sort of new kind of billionaire that was socially conscious, you know, in quotes, and <laughs> creating things for the good of humanity. And because they had made all this money, they clearly knew the answers better than everybody else. And we wanted to explore that. And that's where Mike Prince came from, a guy who you know, on the face of it, it's just better than everybody else, better than Axe and basically knows the outcome of, of every exchange. And it's just one step ahead of even the guy who's one step ahead. And, you know, at some point you realize that it's just the next incarnation of the act and it's just a great freaking <laughs> act. But at the end of the day, they're just trying to get over. We're hearing all the talk about the billions universe. What is that going to mean for us coming down the bike? It's going to mean uh, fascinating and amazing things. Uh, the, <laughs> that sounds um, like something Michael Prince would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we we're not we can't really talk about it with mics in front of us at this stage of the game. Other than to say, we have a show that we can't wait to tell, and we've been working really hard on it. Um, the two of us. Our our notion is that the spirit of billions is a thing that we definitely want to carry forward, without doubt in a different kind of setting. This thing we're talking about, which is the moment of honest emotion without being sentimental in a cynical world, is a really, it's a hat trick. It's a particularly difficult series of things to pull off, which is why I'm bringing it up. And when it happens, and it happens so often in the work, and I wanna just ask you before we go here about how you visit these moments, because they've been sort of key to each season. Often you'll say something and it's like, not something that we've considered. And that's this amazing thing. But I have to say, finding a way to have a real emotional moment, actual moments of catharsis or something right before catharsis that lets the viewer feel something like that is something that we challenge each other to find a way to do. It's something that if one of us could get carried away with the fun of it or wanting the lines to always be daggers, Dave will look at me and Remember, the show's about something and these people. And it's like really important. And obviously we have these actors. I mean, these tools, right? Elvis, you have juxtaposition, you have score, you have actors, you have source music, you have framing of shots and staging. If you've done this as long as we have now, I'm thinking about when we first met, we'd been at this for three years. Now we've been at this for 26 years. And trying to find those moments and allow them and showcase them is a process of like maybe growth or attempted growth ourselves as, as, as artists, right? And um, yes, it's always been there in some ways. When you have Martin Landau in your first movie, it's really helpful. But thanks for noticing that. And as with most of this stuff, you can intellectualize it afterwards if you're us, but it's instinctive when you're doing it. 
Well, we're out of time, so I'm going to thank my guests who clearly can get into rails whenever they want to. They are the creators of Billions, Brian Compliment and David Levine. Guys, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Elvis. Thank you. A show that wrestles with the issue of self-interest versus enlightened self-interest. Creators Brian Koppelman and David Levine on the Showtime series Billions. The series finale airs Sunday, October 29th. More enlightenment to be found at the archives, tcrw.com slash the treatment. I try to stay enlightened, but it probably just comes across as self-interest. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. There's more to come. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. I guess because the title Nausea Heartburn was taken already, my guest <laughs> Julia Fox chose to write her second memoir. Her second book, I should say, is Down the Drain. First of all, I can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you. But it's... There's so much so fascinating because I was and I was digging through my crates and I can't find my copy of Nausea Harbor, which breaks my heart. Wait, you had it? Yeah, because the guy from this bookstore in the East Village. It You're was just, joking? No, I'm not. Oh how, my god! How could you not pick it up? I used I lived on Second between First and Eighth, so that was my neighborhood. And oh wow! I popped this place and the guy goes, "You might like this because it's collages work, it's artwork yeah. and journal entries." Yeah. It's so interesting because the kind of focus. That's in this book. You can see that was kind of a dress rehearsal for this. It totally In a lot was. of ways. Yeah. Because you collect your thoughts in a much more interesting way. Or you collect your thoughts yeah. more. And it was just, I don't want to say venting, but there was this kind of thing of real time in that book that was whatever was happening to you at the moment you wrote it down. Clearly, that's why it was on the page. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so crazy that you had that book. People ask me about it all the time. They're like, make more, make more. And I actually don't even have a copy of it anymore. So the only way I can even see it is like if I'm like tagged in it or something <laughs> like that. But it's just so cool that you have that. And I really appreciate it. And I do feel like that book and this one go hand in hand. Like that one was more like, here's here are the artifacts. Here's the proof. And then this memoir is kind of like breaking down a lot of the things that were already in that book, kind of giving the backstory and how we got there and the whole process. There's clearly perspective here. And we were talking before we got started, but there's this thing here that wasn't in, in, in Nausea Harbor, which is your sense of smell. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you almost lead with your nose in so many instances. It's yeah. smell of being the way your grandfather cooked yeah. or the smell of sweat on a guy coming from one place is coming to another. I mean, just that you so identify a time and a place by the way it smelled is kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, I know. And I never really thought about it before because I've just always been that way. But as we we were sitting here and you mentioned it earlier, I was thinking, well, it's probably because 
it's a sensory thing. And my brother's autistic. My grandpa was autistic. I'm for sure on the spectrum. And I think it it's just a sensory thing. The way someone smells can actually be a deal breaker for me. If I meet someone and they their breath is funky, their BO is funky, their feet smell funky, their hair smells funky, like I get like a physical reaction. It's like a, a strong aversion. And it's like, it's almost like that's all I need to know about them. And, and I'm always right too. I'll be like, they, they smell off. And then turns out they're untrustworthy or flaky or, you know, just not thorough in the way that I need. But then I meet people that have or the smell of their skin. And it's a little funky, but I love it. So it's, it, it goes both ways. You can totally smell bad and I can absolutely love it. Or you can smell okay and I could just hate it. You've done some film work and, and there's such a sort of noir sense in this. We meet people throughout the book and we kind of wonder what's going to happen to them. And sometimes our, our you can feel the hair standing up on the back of our necks like when we meet Ace for the first time, or mm. that when you're in Louisiana with Harmony, and all those smells are going on there, and we're just kind of wondering what's, how these things are going to end up. And I wonder if you were like sort of crafting it with a an eye towards trying to build some suspense because it's all happening so fast. I mean, if there was suspense, it definitely wasn't intentional. But I think when you're going back in time and and reliving it. I was writing it as if I didn't even know what happened in a way. You know what I mean? Like I really had to go back there and remember in that. And that's why I didn't want to write it in like past tense. And because it's like, I don't I don't want to then have to unpack all the I trust that my reader will know exactly how I felt about the situation, even if I didn't like serve it to them on a silver platter. Like I trust that they're intelligent enough to know, OK, she included this because it affected her in this way. And, and you can kind of see that throughout all the patterns that I would get into, because it really felt like I was just stuck in a loop and I could not break free from it no matter what. Because there's this, a line in the book that really sort of, quite a few actually, really stuck with me. One was, I wonder if everybody feels things in such an elevated fashion, mm -hmm. because that's the thing I think that connects both nausea, heartburn, and this, is that things are hitting you so fast and it's such a heightened level that when you get sober, there's a sense of relief because you're not reacting so fast yeah. or so hard yeah. to everything. It's true. I used to feel like I was driving in a car at 200 miles per hour and like just in the passenger seat of my own life, just being like, stop. And I just couldn't, you know, but like I was at the wheel too. And it just, it always felt like I was really battling with this like entity or this demon inside of me that like wanted me dead. And I just could not for the life of me get a grip. And I think getting sober helped a lot because for the first time I was really able to just like look at myself and get to know myself because for so long I was in survival mode, just taking whatever I could get and whatever's going to get me to the next day. I never, ever cried about anything. Like, I just would not even allow myself to go there, you know, whether it was raped or abused or anything. It was just like, nope, we're, I'm not dealing with, I'm, nope. You know, I just wouldn't even allow myself the chance to be like, this happened to me and I feel really bad about it. So when I got sober, it was like a landslide of just that was you know, all coming back all at once so rapidly. And it was like debilitating and paralyzing. But I just knew that I just 
had to stay sober and that I had to buckle my seatbelt and go through it. I couldn't go around it. I couldn't go over it like I used to. I just had to move through it because I knew that that was the only way that I was ever going to be free. It's the truth. My guest, who clearly hasn't been turned off by my smell yet, is Julia <laughs> Fox. Her new book is Down the Drain. I was thinking about how you talk about that one demon being yourself, but there's also sort of demon of perception. And that is that section when things turn bad for you and you're kind of called out in social media mm-hmm. and the way you choose to respond to it. And again, that to me is this sort of velocity of real time that makes this different from the first book, where it's almost like you were trying to assess your surroundings, yeah. whereas you have a, a slightly longer view. And just seeing your reaction was to not give in mm-hmm. and to not be shamed, which yeah. definitely has to come as a sort of big shift from your, your Catholic upbringing. Yeah. I mean, but you just sort of said, no, I am not going to run away from this. Well, it's funny because that book was actually a weapon for me. Yeah. Because I was being called out on social media by these men that really wanted to just drag my name through the mud and they had all this information on me, you know, that I was a dominatrix and a sex worker and a drug addict and I'd been arrested and I had, um, I was on probation and I just had all these things. And so the book was a, was really a way to disarm them because if I could release- Because they're trying to weaponize the truth. That way you could weaponize exactly. their attack. Exactly. Yeah. I just kind of disarmed them because I was like, well, I'll put it out first and then what do you got? And this book is kind of similar in a way because I feel like once overnight I became kind of like a household name, my narrative and my story was getting rewritten from people that didn't know me. I kind of view this book as like setting the record straight. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not this person that you guys think I am. Because what's so interesting about the book is that you're really kind of dispassionate in it. Mm -hmm. There's actually more emotion here. Which is why when I saw that section where you mentioned that that part of your life again, it kind of hit me in a way that it didn't been reading the first book. Yeah. You know what I mean? It felt like you had earned it. Yeah. Because uh, I knew who you were more. I think where I was when that book came out was very much survival mode. And it was dispassionate because it was more about just getting the fact that the truth out on the table so that they couldn't use it against me anymore. And... This book, a lot of time has elapsed. You know, I'm not struggling with the same things I was struggling with back then. Back then, I was still dabbling in hard drugs and shooting up and overdosing occasionally. And like my life was just so different. I, I don't I don't think I even had the perspective that I do now. You know, like if someone told me back then, like, oh, you're a victim, I'd laugh in their face. Like, I was still so ego-driven. I was like, Boy, I'm not a victim. Like, what are you talking about? And I'm not a victim today either. I'm, I'm a survivor. But, like, I would have never allowed myself to, like, feel sorry for little younger me. Whereas now I can. I can give myself a hug and understand that some of the things that happened and I went through were, were beyond my control and it's not my fault. Like, I always felt guilty. I always felt like I was this bad person or something. And now I know that I was just like a victim of the circumstances. It's great to have these two experiences, these two books back to back to have read, because the last section, which feels like you kind of fall into a fairy tale until your past life revisits you, and it comes back in so many writerly ways. Yeah. But I was reminded of the movie Beasts of the Southern Wild as you're writing about that section in Louisiana. Well, that's funny that you mentioned that because I actually lived in the house that the whole production crew stayed in. 
during the filming <laughs> no of *Beast of the Southern Wild*. Yeah, we were on that bayou, and I discovered that after we moved into the house. The like owner of the house told us, and I loved that movie too. So it was crazy that then I'd end up right there where all of that went down. But just the way things are kind of happening, there's this weird kind of intersection of sort of lyrical and violent yeah. at the same time. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I, I always refer to the my, my time in Louisiana as dehab, not rehab, because I literally was just like, it. Like I'd put out the book and then everyone was talking about it. And the thing is, when I put it out, I was doing it to make sure as a as a way to protect myself but i didn't realize that i just exposed my entire life and that came after and i was like oh crap like now all these people know all these things about me and it's so graphic and it's just so like humiliating and i just felt so vulnerable and i wasn't used to that because up until that point i kind of tried to scrub all that away and be like a fashion designer and you know kind of have a more cleaner image so now it's just like night and day and everyone knows all this stuff about me and I did not feel safe being in New York anymore and I also lost so many friends when I came out and accused my ex of, of being violent to me and he was but you can even see in that section of how that these sort of institutional walls are so misogynist mm -hmm. because as you mentioned in the book even the bouncer who told you to call the police turned against you yeah i mean which was shocking to me I because know. he kind of whispers you say he whispers that to you yeah you should call the police because yeah. clearly he knew about this guy's patterns and habits and i had known him since i was like 17 or 16 even he literally watched me grow up like we were friends i was my friend so when he told me to call the police, it was like, oh, my God, like, it's gotten really bad. Like, I need to do something. And he's kind of part of the reason why I did even call the cops. So for then to him turn around and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. That was crazy. And I just had always heard of things like that happening to women, but I did not think it would happen to me. There are a couple of moments like that that basically are sort of telling you that you have to change your life. One is that, and uh, when he turns on you, you go, well, maybe it's time for you to get out of town or mm -hmm. to, to have a big change in your life. Yeah. And the other is when, when you talked in the last third of the book about having been a New York Presbyterian at the psych ward when you were a teen, you can't read these books and not think it. Mm -hmm. the, the descriptor borderline personality disorder came up then. Mm -hmm. And then when you go to see therapist about it and goes, yeah, that could be the case. Mm -hmm. I mean, that well, was... then he said bipolar. And I had always known, because it does run in my family. That's the thing. It's like I didn't want to get on medication for some reason. I thought that that was like, it's it's messed up because the way the that it's... the first time they over-medicated you when you were in the psych yeah. ward. So yeah. I can see you want to react because you were out. Exactly. They, they'd put me on some crazy thing that just made me sleep for like the whole entire day. And I don't know, I just always felt like being on medication. Well, because, but that's because society kind of frowns upon it. It's kind of seen as like a handicap in a way. And so I, I didn't want to be one of those people. But, but then I was self-medicating, you know, so it makes no sense. Like I just wasn't making sense. And now I realize that it's actually a beautiful thing and it's a beautiful tool when it's, you know, used properly. And you're, you know, you have a good doctor who's not just like writing you crazy things. So getting on medication was really, really life-changing for me. There's also a great line in that section when you say to this therapist, I was afraid to fall asleep because I didn't know what mood I would wake up in. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not the most powerful sort of description of of 
such a disorder. I don't know what it is. And yeah. the awareness of that. Yeah. That was, tell me about writing that section, that sentence, because it's really incredibly powerful thing to read. I mean, uh, yeah, I have a painful level of self-awareness, actually. But yeah, I would literally dread going to sleep because I didn't know who I'd wake up to, you know? And I'd usually know within like the first 10 seconds of opening my eyes what kind of day it was going to be. And it just always felt like, you know, it felt like everyone else wakes up and they're at like zero, right? And then they go up throughout the day. It felt like I was waking up at like negative 10. And then I got to work so much harder just to get to zero. And then like everything just felt like so hard. And I just, I I just didn't want to live sometimes, you know? It just felt like this is really exhausting. Like I'm not even out here achieving anything that great and I'm exhausted. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to live and get by the day. It's sucking the soul out of me. So getting on medication really helped that a lot. For me, the whole book builds up to that section, mm-hmm. which is, I'm, I'm saying, that's the difference. And also, your, I think your your skills as a writer between these first two books, too, that you, rather than just sort of tell us what's going on, you build the case for who you are. So in that moment, it's like, we realize that you are as acutely self-aware as you mm-hmm. seem to be. Is that a hard thing to read and to recognize that you have that? Because it's not so much in the first book as it is here. Yeah, definitely it is. And it was so painful to have to go back and revisit it. Like I felt, I was like, there were moments where I was like, I'm going to hire a ghostwriter. I'm done. Like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I, I, why would I, why did I sign up for this? Like, what did I get myself into? I had so many moments writing this where I just wanted to tap out. Probably a hundred. Like, actually, where I was like, I can't, I don't want to do this. Because funny enough, so many things I've read, about, like the New Yorker profile, nobody mentions that you kind of did this before. And this is like a wholly different take on it, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it is, it's a, clearly it's a different person having written the book, but it's yeah. also a different perspective on it, which is what's so fascinating to me to have the two of them juxtaposed like that. Well, in my you're head. the only person who's even really, who's, I don't, I think you're like the only person I've talked to that like has read those other books and knows about. Really? Me, yeah. Because so many people seem to be, and I wanted to ask you about this before we go. So many people are reacting to you as a media person rather than somebody who clearly has skills. Oh, I as know. A I hate that. I don't know why. I don't know why that's the case. I'm like, I'm an artist. Ah! Like, I feel like I'm like having to just scream it off the freaking rooftops because it's like, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the clothes, maybe it's the makeup, maybe it's because I'm a woman, but like nobody wants to take me seriously. But you know what? That's always been the case. So it's almost like I go into every situation already knowing that they don't take me seriously. My guest is Julia Fox. Her book is Down the Drain. I can't think of. Please come back. Thank you. Another storyteller from the streets of Manhattan, Julia Fox. Her memoir is Down the Drain. The treat from director Numa Perrier about an artist she finds enlightening. Next, storytellers from New York and other places at kcrw.com slash the treat. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. And with the treat, director Numa Perrier. Her recent film is The Perfect Fine. She offers her thoughts on a photographer casting a lens on domesticity and complexity. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Numa Perrier, and this is The Treat. So the first time that I felt really pulled into an artist's body of work was when I saw Carrie Mae Weems' photography series, The Kitchen Series. These are black and white photos that she set up at her kitchen table of herself, of her children, of her lover, her lovers, <laughs> perhaps. And it was very day in the life or night in the life snapshots of what would happen at this kitchen table. And I remember being so pulled in to this photography and so pulled into Carrie Mae Weems as an artist. She's a filmmaker, she's a sculptor, she's a photographer. But it was really this first series that taught me the way that imagery could tell a story that was so feminine and so sensual and so simple and so personal at the same time. I was just very moved by it, very moved by her entire body of work, everything she continues to create. I had, you know, the pleasure of meeting her once and she was just incredible to talk to, so soft and strong and, you know, all of the things that, that you look up to in a woman. There's a photo book that shows uh, the kitchen series and some of the writing that she would put alongside it. Like, neither knew with certainty what the future held. It could be only a paper moon hanging over a cardboard sea. But they both said, it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. Having that central idea of Black womanism, Black feminism, just the richness of the simple moments of her life that she was showing through these photos is something that I want to always embody in my work on some level, in some scene, in some way. Just how rich a simple moment can be. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you Numa Perrier, director of The Perfect Find, on artist Carrie Mae Weems, finding poetry in the everyday. More ruminations on art to be found, such as Domi Shea on an artist bringing poetry to animation at kcrw.com slash the treat. Poetry, it exists in many forms, from the written word, to music, to style, to film, and creators reflecting on discovering it, it's the treat. Back here in Santa Monica, the show is produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney. It's mixed by Katie Gilchrist, and it had help from Anna Bus and Laura Kandarajan. To better days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. Yes, it's only a canvas sky hanging over a muslin tree. 
KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.